I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. But that drives me to go a layer deeper. And I think some people will probably switch off and leave us now. But (laughs) what you're saying here is that we, again, what you led me to think about here is all of this is observed, interacted with, engaged with through those eyes and that brain. But even those are icons. Even those don't really exist in reality. The brain itself is just an icon. Now, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist. I've spent a lot of time studying the brain. It's a valuable thing to study. And for everyday neuroscience, I will talk about brain activity causing my behavior and causing my conscious experiences. It's, it's perfectly harmless for everyday neuroscience. Just like it's harmless when you're playing Grand Theft Auto to think that the steering wheel literally causes your car to turn. If you're playing the game, it's perfectly harmless to believe that. If you're a software engineer that wants to do the next install of the software for that game and upgrade it, that illusion, that fiction is no longer harmless. If you really believe that the steering wheel in Grand Theft Auto is the final reality, you don't understand what you need to understand to upgrade the software. The game. And so when we're understanding consciousness and its relationship to the brain, the fiction that brains exist when they're not observed has to go. For everyday neuroscience, it's wow. a perfectly good fiction. And I use it all the time. I'll say area V4 causes color perception. And it's sort of a quick shorthand. It's very useful to, to talk about. It. But when you're talking about consciousness, just like if you're a game developer trying to install new software, you can't stay in the fiction of the game anymore. You have to have a bigger view. The headset is just the headset. It's not the reality. There's this bigger context of the supercomputer that's governing the headset. Similarly with the brain and consciousness, the brain, strictly speaking, does not exist when it's not perceived. Right now, I have no brain. There is no brain. If you looked, you would see a brain, but that's because you're creating a brain icon when you're interacting with that aspect of objective reality. So you create brains on the fly and you garbage collect them when you're not looking. So every time you look inside a head, you're going to see a brain. Every time you look toward the steering wheel in Grand Theft Auto, you will see the steering wheel. Not because the steering wheel is always there, because you always render the steering wheel in the same way when you do that action. So that's the kicker. And that's why it's been so hard for us to understand this. Again, at four months of age, we're programmed to have object permanence as part of our belief system. Brains, like rocks, exist all the time, even if they're not perceived. That's our deep belief. It's deeply false. We're programmed from this evolutionary point of view. We're programmed to take the game very, very seriously, to take our headset very, very seriously, because that's what you need to do to play the game. And so we take it literally as literally true. And again, for playing the game, that's perfectly fine. There's no reason for you to know that brains don't exist when they're not perceived. There's no reason for you to know that a rock doesn't exist when it's not perceived for everyday life. You don't need to know that. Science has only come to this point of view with good evidence and good theory in the last century. And it's only because geeks have time to think about this stuff 
that we're, we're thinking about it for everyday life. You don't need to think about this. But I think for a lot of people, it's fascinating to realize that something that we've all deeply believed all of our lives is that deeply false. It's terrifying, but it's fascinating and it's eye-opening. For me, it's been both. It's been both one of the most terrifying things I've ever thought about and also one of the most fascinating and attractive things I've ever encountered. It's both at the same time. And that seems to be the way learning goes. Learning means that you're having to let go of what you already know and go into the Absolutely. Unknown. Learning is mostly about unlearning to start and then you go from there to discover new realities, new opportunities, new eye-opening concepts. I have to say I'm very comfortable with what you're saying. Being a gamer, I can completely relate to what you're saying because in reality, I don't perceive the game. My wonderful son, Ali, before he left our world, Ali was legendary. He was a true video gamer. And, wow. you know, he gamed sometimes violent games. And I would go like, Ali, but you're a very peaceful person. Why would you do that? And he would say, Papa, I don't see aliens. Gaming for me is, I don't see that I'm shooting an alien. I see a representation of a target that I need to get into my flow and move with the reality of that game, the gameplay, the game flow in ways where I shoot here or there. If you had replaced that alien with a bullseye, the game would be the same for me as a true gamer. And I have to say, so after Ali left our world, I tried to honor him in many ways, where basically I tried to live the way he lived in some things. And I became legendary. I'm like really serious in some of the games wow, he played. Wow. And I will tell you openly that the next level of perception actually abstracts all of the illusion. So to really, really be a gamer, you almost lose when I'm really in the toughest parts of the game. I forget the rendering of the game completely. I'm actually looking for pixels on the screen and I'm zooming in to see those and ignoring the rest of it. And by doing that, you're really re-rendering, you're recreating, reconstructing your reality for fit. Exactly as you said, it's for fit. That's right. Because there are only seven pixels on that screen that would make you win. And all of the other graphics and the background and the jungle and all of that, that's irrelevant. That's right. So you focus in on what you need. But then I think the question is, in your thinking, in your research, in your reflections maybe, would you be able to describe what those seven points on the screen of reality are? I mean, is there a better way for us to go through life not being fooled by the illusion of reality? Is there something that matters more than others? Yeah, that's a good question because from this point of view, all that I'm seeing is just a headset view. So the question is, what is the reality and how can I get in touch with it? Yeah, if my aim is is to connect to your consciousness. Is there a shortcut? Is there a cheat in the game? Is there a certain pixel in that desktop or a certain icon in the desktop that is more worthy of your attention than others? That's a great question. And there's, I guess, a couple levels to think about in trying to answer that question, right? So one is first recognizing that what we thought was reality is not, is the yes. first step. And recognizing that what I see when I interact with you isn't you, it's just my icon. That there's much more to you and to your consciousness than anything that I could ever see. 
That's the first step. I think the next step, well, there's a couple things. One is we're going to have to really understand, to really answer your question deeply, we're going to have to really get a mathematical model of this network of conscious agents. What is this dynamics? How does it operate? What is it up to? Why is there a dynamics of consciousness? Why should there be a dynamics of consciousness? And second, we'll have to get a mathematical model of how is our space-time headset related to that realm of conscious agents? What is the projection? What is the mathematical projection from the social network of conscious agents into our headset? Once we do that, and I think we can do it with mathematical precision, that's what I'm working on right now. That's my full-time work right now is trying to get that mathematical mapping. Once we do that, we should be able to reverse engineer it. We should be able to play with the headset, just like someone who really knows the VR headset of virtual reality game, even if you're a wizard at Grand Theft Auto, if I know the software, I can take the gas out of your tank. I can take the air out of your tires. Absolutely. Uh, in other words, I could warp space and time. I could warp the road that you're driving on. If this framework is correct, once we get the mapping from the realm of conscious agents into the space-time headset, we're going to unleash technologies that make everything that we've done so far look trivial. Right now, science has only studied the headset. Space-time. The space-time. So the best scientists are like the wizards of games. They're playing the game really smart inside the headset. But a wizard in the game is going to be helpless against someone who knows how to step outside the headset and play with the very parameters of the game itself. That's amazing. That is amazing. As a matter of fact, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, because I heard you speak about it once, to start with, we can actually manipulate our perception of the icon. So I, I heard you speak of things like zone four and zone five, and if you put strong magnets next to them, you can actually alter perception of life completely, of reality completely. So can you tell us a bit about that? Because I think this is fascinating in every way. It also goes to the fact that reality is really very, very subjective. So tell us about this. So yes, this is sort of standard knowledge in neuroscience now. So I'm not talking something outside the standard fare of neuroscience when I talk about this. There's an area of the brain called area V4, visual cortex. And this area is highly correlated with your color perceptions. Activity in V4 and color perceptions are highly correlated. And if you take a magnet called a transcranial magnetic stimulation device, which can put two or three Tesla, pretty intense magnetic field in a very, very small region, so this is nothing to play with. You can fry your brain, so you don't want to play with. So in very controlled conditions, they will put a magnet, touch it to your skull, and give brief pulses, control pulses, so that you don't actually kill neurons. But you can inhibit the neurons in area V4. And when you do that, you will lose all color perception in the right visual world. Wow. So I have a, an apple. It's red apple. Over here, it's red. Now I move it to the center of my field of view. It's half red. The left half is red. The right half is black and white. And now it's all black and white. The right half of the visual world is like a black and white television. The left half is like a color television. Then you take the magnet off and the color experience comes flowing back in. Wow. And in area V5, which is correlated with motion, you get the same thing for motion perception. If we inhibit area V5, you lose all motion perception. Say if I do it in the left hemisphere, you lose all motion perception in the right visual field. You don't see smooth motion. It's more like stroboscopic 
like an old disco. Wow. You see people dancing like this, like that, but you don't see them moving in between. So you see no smooth motion, but I'm moving the apple. It's jumping, jumping, jumping. And then once I pass the midline, now it moves smoothly. I can now construct a smooth motion. Wow. Because V5 is basically sort of rendering the frames in between so that it appears to be a smooth motion between the 10 frames per second that your eyes can see or something like that. That's right. But notice how we're talking. We're saying that, as you said, V5 is sort of rendering the frames. So we're talking as though the brain is doing something. And again, for everyday neuroscience, the way we're talking is perfectly fine. But from the deeper point of view that we've just discussed, V5 does nothing, right? V5 is an icon that I use wow. to describe what I see when I peer at reality. But V5 is just my icon. So what's really going on from this deeper perspective, let's take the point of view of conscious agents being fundamental, just for sake of argument. I don't know if it's right, but I don't have a better theory right now. <laughs> so if the reality is conscious agents, then V5 is just my headset description of a certain part of this network of conscious agents and what they're doing. This gets to a deeper point of view. I'm not just one conscious agent. I'm a whole network of conscious agents. You are one conscious agent, but you're also a whole community of conscious agents. And so part of that community of you, of your own conscious agents, is what you call area V5. If you look, if someone were to let you look inside your own brain, like with a mirror, you take your skull off and have a mirror, that would be how you your icon is being created to represent the conscious agents that are interacting to give you your perception of motion or your perception of color in area V4. So that brings up a whole other level of this, which is quite fascinating. And maybe I'll just try to give you an intuition why you might take seriously the idea that you're more than one consciousness, that you are not just one, but two, and then multiple. And this again comes back to some standard neuroscience. There are a population of people who've had epilepsy that's so serious that there are no drugs that were able to control the epilepsy. And in those cases, the epilepsy is really life-threatening and certainly life-destroying because you can't do anything. You can't drive. You, you never know when you're going to fall down and, and break a bone or break a tooth. It's horrific. So in extreme cases, because the situation was so desperate, they took a desperate measure. They would remove the top of the skull, and a surgeon, Joe Bogan and others, I actually was a friend of Joe, so I, I knew Joe. He was a surgeon who actually did these surgeries, would take a scalpel and cut a part of the brain called the corpus callosum. And the corpus callosum that is- That connects a, the right and left. That's right. So it's like a cable that's connecting the left and right hemisphere. So each hemisphere has roughly 43 billion neurons. So you have a total of about 86 billion neurons, and th there's a- cable with about 200 to 25 million, not billion, million axons that's connected. So it's a small connection to, you know, compared to 86 billion, B billion uh, neurons. So the idea of the surgery was if you have an epileptic focus, say in your right hemisphere, so there's some part of the brain that's malfunctioning that's causing the epilepsy. If you could cut the corpus callosum, then maybe the right hemisphere would go down when you have an epileptic seizure. But those brain waves wouldn't go over to the left hemisphere. You wouldn't get the left hemisphere going down. So that was the idea, and it worked. It was a clinical success. They would cut the corpus callosum, the person would re recover, and for a lot of people, they could return to everyday life. They could have a job. They could go out. It was really a clinical success. But the remarkable thing was, when they did careful testing, 
of these people. Roger Sperry at Caltech was one of the key people who did this, this kind of work. He won the Nobel Prize, actually, for the discoveries that I'm discussing here. He discovered that the left and right hemispheres, there's evidence that they have separate spheres of consciousness. You can have a situation in which the right hemisphere is aware of the word key, and the left hemisphere is aware of the word ring, and no one is aware of the phrase key ring. They found a people in which the left hemisphere believes in God, and the right hemisphere is an atheist. Wow. The left hemisphere is wants a career as a draftsman, a very, very safe, indoor job. And the right hemisphere wants to be a race car driver. So the two hemispheres can have completely separate contents of consciousness, completely disjoint contents of their consciousness. They have completely different worldviews, goals in life, job, career, desires, and even religious orientations, both in one skull which, by the way, could be one reason why we have internal conflicts. When you actually feel like you're debating, should I party tonight or should I study tonight? That may be because there are, in fact, two players, one that wants to party. Maybe the left hemisphere wants to party and maybe the right hemisphere, but probably it's the right hemisphere. The right hemisphere is the one that would yeah. probably want to party. And the left hemisphere would be the one that may want to um, you know, study. So there we have evidence that you're not just one consciousness, but two. And of course, that's debated. And the debate is fair, but I would say that the fact that we can actually have completely separate contents of consciousness is pretty compelling to me. The right hemisphere can be aware of something that the left... Here's how compelling it is. The two hemispheres can play 20 questions with each other. I can give a word to the right hemisphere that the left hemisphere doesn't know. So the right hemisphere has a word, and the left hemisphere then has to guess what the right hemisphere is thinking about. And so they can play 20 questions. The way they can play 20 questions is the left hemisphere can talk. So whenever I'm talking, it's my left hemisphere that's talking. The right hemisphere can understand language, but it doesn't control the vocal apparatus for talking. It can cuss, but it can't talk. But the left hemisphere controls the right hand, and the right hemisphere controls the left hand. So when I'm using my left hand, that's because my right hemisphere is controlling it. So the way you can do it is the the left hemisphere can guess. The left hemisphere can say, is it an animal? And the right hemisphere can answer by controlling the left hand and say, thumbs up for yes, thumbs down for no. And so here's a person, the the two hemispheres are playing 20 questions, and sometimes the left hemisphere doesn't get it. Wow. That seems to me pretty good evidence of separate, not spheres of consciousness, separate agents. This is agency, not just consciousness, but agency. One is trying to guess the other one's answering. And the fact that they can have different career goals also suggests agency and different religious beliefs, again, suggests agency. So what I'm proposing, and I could be wrong, is you're not just one agent, you're two. You're not just two, you're an entire network of conscious agents. And what we called area V4 is just my little icon that I get when I'm interacting with a little part of my network that's sort of responsible for me seeing color. And when I interact with another aspect of the conscious agent network that's responsible for me seeing motion, that's what I call area V5 and my little dumbed-down user interface that I call the brain. <laughs> yeah. Let me take you to two more. I, 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 I could talk to you for hours, but let's just try to jump 
and get this theory in comparison to some of what we have learned to believe as humanity. So I want to compare it to quantum physics and I want to compare it to spirituality, right? So a lot of what you're discussing is intuitive in the uncertainty principle. The reality that we create our own perception, that actually perception creates reality, and that without perception, the icon doesn't really exist, if you want. Do you believe that there is a correlation between them? I think that there is a correlation in the sense that when I see you smile, I, I assume that you're happy, and I have above a well above chance chance of being right, right? So um, yeah. So there's a correlation between the icons. I mean, when you get to know a person, you can read their mood from their body language, their facial expressions very, very well. Identical twins are really they're really linked up that way. So it's fallible but genuine. It's like any communication channel, right? A communication channel will have noise. It's fallible, but it's a genuine communication channel. So I think that consciousness is interact via our user interface. It's genuine, but fallible interaction. And through that interaction, I don't know how to say this any other way. We are creating the video game. We're creating the entire game world. You know, if I turn the steering wheel to the left and, you know, hit the red Ferrari a little bit, I've just created a completely different game. That's right. So, you can see that there's going to be a very interesting, if this approach is on track, what we have to do is understand how networks of agents can collaborate to create this user interface. And that how that interface is the way that we then interact with the broader network of conscious agents. So the work on deep neural networks is going to be very, very relevant here. Exactly. Yeah, exactly similar, yeah. That work is not irrelevant. It's just that I'm going to reinterpret it in a very, very different way. It's going to be not just unconscious circuits implementing unconscious software. This is real conscious agents with real choices interacting with real other conscious agents. So the work that's been done at DeepMind at Google is going to be, in fact, as you probably know far better than I do, there's been some recent work at DeepMind where they're you're creating these deep neural networks that are being trained to solve certain problems. And in the past, you've tried to actually give the neural network as much information about the reality. Not anymore. It's now unprompted. Not anymore. Yeah. Now you just let the neural network build its own VR interface. And the VR interfaces that they create are not mirrors of reality. They're actually interfaces that hide reality and just let the the deep neural network do what you want it to do. Correct. So in other words, what we're finding is a convergence from what's happening at DeepMind in the deep neural networks. And what what I'm saying, evolution by natural selection has done for us. It's created an interface that hides the truth. That's how you get the job done. It's alarmingly similar, as a matter of fact. How does this overlap with spirituality? I mean, so the concept of multiple consciousness, conscious agents is very similar to the statement, you're a spiritual being having a physical experience. So basically, you're a form of consciousness that is connected to all other forms of consciousness and that is rendered on the desktop through those icons of physical observations. Does that make sense? I absolutely agree. So you're right that this now 
this framework opens the possibility of a rapprochement between science and spirituality, that the rigorous analytic and mathematical tools that have been developed by science, the hard-earned tools, can now be applied to something beyond space-time, to spiritual, by spiritual, I often use just the word conscious, this realm of conscious agents, right? Mm -hmm. And this, many spiritual traditions have been saying for thousands of years, They, especially mystical traditions, have told us that space-time isn't fundamental. There's a reality beyond space-time that's fundamental. But they've not had the tools of, of science to take it further and to make that notion rigorous and, and to make experimental tests of it. Now, I think we can. we're at a position where we could actually have a rapprochement and, and in fact, a, a collaboration between science and spirituality where now we're on the same page. Space-time isn't fundamental. The scientists are catching up. It's taken a few thousand years. And by the way, the reason scientists haven't gotten there until now is because we were busy studying the headset and we had to. You really have to understand your headset and sharpen your tools. Now we know we have good scientific tools. We really understand our headset. In fact, we understand it so well that we've discovered it's a headset. It's not the truth. <laughs> yes. Space. So that's, that's science growing up. So science has now got the chops, has got the tools to go beyond space-time. Now, the spiritual traditions have been saying this for thousands of years, but they don't have the tools. Now, they have certain tools. They have meditation and spiritual practices, which have certain arena of... Sort of transcend, give you the feeling that you're outside space-time. That's right, but they, you also see their limits. In many cases, they're saying the same thing now that they said 3,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And what we would like is to get to the point where we can say things about the spiritual realm precisely so we can begin to figure out where we're wrong, right? Now, we know <laughs> that spiritual traditions have not spoken with one voice for the last 3,000 or 4,000 years. In fact, in many cases, they've been at each other's throats, disagreeing and killing each other, right? So it would be nice to go beyond that and settle our disagreements as we settle them in science. Scientists don't kill each other typically, <laughs> when they disagree on the theories, they, they go and get experiments and test. I'd probably say settle them with math, not science, because I actually have to say my conversation with you makes me very optimistic because science sort of refuses to acknowledge what cannot be observed in the headset, in the physical world. But math might be able to. I think the idea of building mathematical models that observe that kind of interaction is actually quite fascinating. I don't remember, I think it was called The Big Picture, a book that I read on the topic where basically the idea that you can map traffic, for example, uh, to a very accurate level or map the reflection of light to a very accurate level. But, you know, as you zoom out of the picture, you realize that the reflection of light is actually on my glasses and that I'm actually a human being and I can decide to look a little bit to the left and your entire theory goes bust because you were expecting a static lens that is reflecting something else, right? Or refracting something else. And, and I think the, the reality is that we get to that point where consciousness starts to affect physics and we say, nope, that's not what we're trying. We abstract that and we say, no, no, we're only studying the things where consciousness is not engaged. 
And quantum theory is a great example of that. Quantum theory is basically saying this is the gateway. This is the point at which consciousness meets physics. And we just go to the uncertainty principle and say it's a affected by some form of observation and that's it. And we don't go beyond that. We don't study that form of observation. We don't attempt to understand any further. I absolutely agree with you, 100%. And I actually was at an FQXI physics conference just a couple of years ago on the role of the observer in quantum theory. Mm-hmm. And I thought I would be among physicists who were open to consciousness. And it turned yeah. out, no, no. And they didn't even have a theory of the observer beyond the standard formalism of some kind of operator, right? There's just some kind of self-adjoint operator that implements yeah. the, the collapse of the wave function. I think it's because of the instruments we use for the collapse of the wave function are mostly cameras. They're not assuming it's an observation. If you look at the, the quantum eraser experiment, for example, it's just mirrors and cameras, right? And mirrors and cameras, or not cameras, but you know something that detects the particle, it's not a human being observing it. It's not a form of life observing it. That's the way they think about it. Yeah, they abstract at that level. They say it's separated, and accordingly, it's not consciousness. But that would be an incredible breakthrough. I mean, if we can just direct... I normally say spirituality is the science of trying to connect to the non-physical, right? But what you're now doing is you're saying, and because it's a science, we can enable it with mathematics. And that would be fascinating, fascinating. Yeah, there's absolutely no reason for us to not have a scientific spirituality. I see no obstruction. It's just our prejudices and our history that keeps us back. That We have the tools, it just takes humility to not hold our ideas about the spiritual world dogmatically. We need to put them out there precisely and Jews and Muslims and Christians and all need to take our ideas, put them on the table, not fight each other and start to say, oh, well, you know, that's a good idea. And let's, let's try to make it precise. Let's try to, you know, test it. And you have to be willing to be shown wrong. That's the, that's the scary part of it. Could it be that something in my spiritual tradition that we've believed for 3,000 years, there's something that's deeply right, but there's also something that's deeply wrong. How do I deal with that? Correct. How do I deal with that without you know coming to blows with people and having the older members of my tradition say I'm a heretic and things like that? That's the human side of this. But we have the tools. Yeah. There's, in principle, no reason why we can't go there. And on quantum theory, it's really interesting. It turns out that quantum theory itself may be nothing more than the structure of space-time. That's a remarkable statement. There is something called geometric algebra that I highly recommend. It's a beautiful, it's different than algebraic geometry. It's called geometric algebra. And there's a book by Duran and Lassenby called Geometric Algebra for Physicists. It turns out that you can write down an algebra for Minkowski space. It's a four primary vectors, one a time vector, which has a square of one, and then three space vectors with each square to minus one. And when you just look at that algebra, it turns out you get all of quantum information theory coming out of space-time. We often think of space-time you know, from Einstein and quantum theory from exactly. you know, Bohr yeah. as separate. It turns out that they're deeply unified, that quantum information theory is nothing but the algebra of space-time. They're the same thing. So quantum theory 
does not escape the headset. It's the algebra of the headset, which is really quite interesting. That's so interesting. I have to say, I can talk to you for hours. I mean, maybe we should just finish for the listeners and then we continue forever. I have to say, this is one podcast where we may have left with more questions than answers. We've given a picture of a world that might be very, very different than what we think it is. And I think that's fascinating. Fascinating. I can't thank you enough, Donald. It's such an eye-opening perception. And what can I say might not be reality. It almost surely isn't. If evolution of natural selection is correct, then it almost surely isn't. (laughs) None of that conversation ever happened. (laughs) (laughs) Donald, thank you so much. And for everyone listening, I think it's about time to put your podcast player down and uh, reflect on this. Most of what we see is not really what is out there. It is our construction, reconstruction of what's out there. I think that's a fascinating, fascinating idea. As I always say, I uh, hope that you help me spread the message, share this with uh, the people that you love, find me on social media, talk to me about what you think, talk to Donald and ask him questions, ask me questions. And yeah, remember that despite how many things you have every day, you always have a chance to slow down. I love you all for listening and I hope to see you here next time.